0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney.
1: And I'm Andrew Kleinman.
0: On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Jacobin Magazine's nauseatingly bad coverage of the January 6th insurrection. We'll be looking at pieces by Ben Burgess, David Serrata, and Branko Marchetic, and comparing that to some real research done by an actual social scientist Robert Pape. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. If you're a regular listener, you might remember that our previous episode featured a discussion about the new MHI statement Capitalism and the Ecological Crisis. Well, you're in luck because uh, next weekend, on Sunday, January 30th, Marxist Humanist Initiative will have its first public meeting of the new year, and we'll be discussing that piece. I, Brandon Cooney, will be giving a presentation. And if you're interested in coming to the meeting, it's over Skype. You just need to write to us at mhi at Initiative.org. There'll be a link in the podcast description and on the MHI website. The meeting will be from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also visit the MHI website to read the article again and to learn about the meeting. We are recording this segment on January 17th. We are going to be talking about January 6th, and more specifically, the coverage of January 6th by Jacobin Magazine over the past year. This month was the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection in which fascists tried to overthrow the U.S. government. And there have been a lot of discussions in the media about the meaning of that event then and now. Jacobin Magazine has continued to peddle the line that there is nothing to see here, to be soft on fascism, to be apologetic for the insurrectionists, and to peddle falsehoods about the motivations of the Trump base in order to advance their own political agenda. So in today's episode, we're going to look at uh, three thinkers who have published things about January 6th in Jacobin Magazine. We're going to be taking a look at Branko Marchetic, Ben Burgess, and David Serrata. And we're also going to be um, looking at some other research uh, by Robert Pape, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, that clearly shows that the line that Jacobin magazine has been peddling about Trump's base being motivated by economic distress, that that narrative is is completely false.
1: Yeah, I just want to say a couple of things. I mean, not only have the Jacobin people not learned, they're getting worse. I mean, it's bad enough be soft on the Trump base. And it's just orders of magnitude horrific to be soft on fascist insurrection. The other thing is, Pape's research is partly on the the, the Trump base, but what really makes it stand out is it's on the insurrectionists. It's on the 700 plus people who have been charged, some of them have been convicted and, and, and so forth, of participating in the insurrection.
0: So why don't we start off with this piece by Branko Marchetic. It came out on the anniversary of January 6th this year. Uh, The piece is called, A Year After the Capitol Riot, Nothing Useful Has Been Done. And the blurb accompanying the piece reads, After the January 6th violence at the Capitol, Americans got a bigger national security state. What they didn't get was solutions to any of the underlying forces that helped bolster right-wing extremism and i think the blurb pretty much sums up the whole article it's like if you know what the code words are for jacobin's politics you can see that this is gonna be one of these like paint by number articles when they say underlying forces we know they mean neoliberalism and when they say that it hasn't resolved the underlying forces they mean that we can blame everything on the fact that the democrats haven't given up their neoliberal orientation And I think that's basically what is being argued in his piece. He he criticizes the investigation into 1-6, saying that it's just leading to a growth in the national security state and that this growth is threatening to future hypothetical left movements. The real solution to right-wing extremism is social democracy because right-wing extremism is an outlet for economic discontent. Because the neoliberal Democrats have failed to offer social democracy as a solution to economic discontent, people have turned to right-wing extremism. This is the sort of argument they were advancing about the Trumpist base in 2016, even though it was contradicted by study after study into the motivations of the Trump base. But we're still hearing this repetition of the argument here. And like I said, it's become like this paint-by-numbers, like knee-jerk way of framing any kind of argument about politics in America. So Marchetic begins the article suggesting that rather than merely condemning the insurrectionists, we need to understand their motivations so we can stop the spread of right-wing extremism. Uh, And then he lists these facts that he thinks are somehow left out of the mainstream narrative and that support his position he says, two-thirds of those arrested had histories of financial troubles. This factoid he's using is actually a data point that first emerged just a month after the insurrection in February of 2021, and you could see it in different outlets. It was emerged only after only a handful of people had been arrested at that point. Um, and as we're going to get to later in the podcast, this research by Pape shows that there's really no relationship between economic discontent, financial troubles, or any sort of economic logic at all between there's no there's no link between that and the motivations of the insurrectionists or the Trump base in general. But we should also point out that like since one six, the Trumpite base in the country as a gen- in general has become unified around the big lie and support for the insurrection. So the problem is like a lot wider now than just looking at who happened to be in D.C. So even if Marchetta's claims about who was in D.C. on 1-6 were backed up by the data, which they're not, they still don't really take into consideration the, the problem of the nature of the Trump base and the fact that they're all in on insurrection now. The second point that he brings up that he thinks helps his point is that insurrectionists believe the conspiracies Trump spread about the election. His main uh, insinuation here is that the insurrectionists were people who were like deluded. They were duped by the establishment politicians. So the real bad guys are the establishment politicians and the corporate media and not the insurrectionists themselves, who are just sort of these unthinking, faultless yahoos that are just they have had the the wool pulled over their eyes i found this like really problematic because something something we've talked about over and over again in this podcast is the dynamism of the trump base the way the attitudes and desires of that base have driven the the gop to bend over backwards to cater to their fascist sentiments I mean, we saw this like strikingly after 1-6 when it looked like maybe Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy were ready to ditch Trump and turn the Republican Party around. And then had some polling probably and realized that actually, no, they needed to suck up the Trump some more. And Kevin McCarthy famously went down to Mar-a-Lago in Florida and had like a kiss-up conference with Trump and the party like permanently joined itself to Trump after that point, even when they sort of had an opportunity to throw him under the bus um, after the insurrection.
1: Right. And this is the moment where they deposed Liz Cheney from leadership and put in a woman who's actually much less conservative, but is a latter day Trump suck up. This is a really important point that it's not being driven by the mainstream Republican Politicians, this phenomenon. It's being driven by the base, and the base is, of course, connected to Fox News. They listen to that and so forth. So it's not that there aren't elites and stuff involved, but this dynamic, the way he's got it, is not the way it's going down. But yeah, this, like, why do Marchetic and why do the Jacobin people not seem to give any credence to the idea that fascists want fascism? It's like they're not really people. It's like they don't really have goals and desires. They're just like these consumption machines that when they don't get enough consumption, they act out. The one, the one thing that's so important here is to understand that there are real people here and they're not stupid and they want authoritarianism and they want fascism and they're, they're not. It's just a handful of people. We're talking about millions upon millions of people.
0: I forget which of our podcast episodes it was. Maybe we were talking to somebody about the nature of populism. I can't remember now. But the point was made that one of the sort of central pillars of populist uh, belief is that the people all have a common understanding or that they all like want the same thing really. And just that the elites are the ones that are diluting people and messing everything up. And that's like common to... Right and left populism. And I think we see that in this left populism that is central to Jacobinite thought, right? That they can't really understand or believe that there would be millions of people that have very reactionary ideas. They just assume that that's the product of some sort of false consciousness that's the fault of elites and not just the actual beliefs of people in this country.
1: Yeah, yeah. For, for sure. There's a really crude economic determinism uh, d- driving all of this.
0: Well, the the third point that Marchetic uh, musters that he thinks backs up his thesis is that, according to him, the actual plan wasn't for the insurrectionists to stop the election, but for GOP politicians to do the stealing. So we'll see this... Argument echoed later in our podcast. Um, ben Burr just makes a similar argument. He's like, you know, we should really be worrying about the GOP elite trying to steal elections in the future, and not this insurrectionist thing, which wasn't really—they weren't trying to to stop the election. I mean, for one thing, this is just not true. I think it's a really mischaracter, real mischaracterization of what was going on that day. Um, and we, we don't really know. We haven't seen all the, you know, the, the DOJ hasn't brought all its evidence out. yet. we don't know what it's gonna, what dots are gonna be connected. We don't know exactly the role of the insurrection and the wider attempt to, to keep Trump in office. But it's clear that they did delay the certification of a democratic presidential election by several hours. That Mike Pence's life was in danger, and that uh, certainly a lot of the people there thought that they were that their actions were going to keep Trump in office. So I don't. I think this is like a dangerous argument for them to be making.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we know from what has come out based on uh, what the January 6th uh, Commission has found. I think we know that the role of the insurrection was to disrupt things enough to try to shut down the certification process to gum up the works, at which point either they would just like close Congress so the certification couldn't be done, that would kick things over so that the choice would eventually be made by the Congress as to who's president or maybe it would be kicked up to the Supreme Court. There clearly was a conspiracy that had multiple prongs and it goes into the challenges to the, the, the ballots here and there, and goes into the uh, alternative slates of electors that were illegally sent in fraudulently. It goes to the insurrection. There were a lot of things that they were doing. Some was just piling on, trying everything, but there are definitely, although I can't say that you know, I have in my hands the the, the exact proof, if you try to piece things together, it's pretty clear that the insurrection was part of an overall plan to prevent Biden from assuming power and keeping Trump in power. That doesn't mean that everybody participated in the insurrection was involved in the planning. Just like in any war, they don't take the, the people they conscript and say, here's our grand battle plan, here's our strategy. They say, charge that hill. And Trump says, go to the Capitol and and be wild and have fun. That's the way it works, okay? It doesn't mean that an enemy combatant is not an enemy combatant. It, they are, yeah.
0: There are a couple things that Mark Marchetic says, a couple quotes that I lifted from the piece that I think really bring out this conflation of right and left populism, like the inability of Marchetic and other people of Jacobin to differentiate between fascist and social democratic masses of people. In this quote, Mark Chattuck is criticizing the Democrats and the Biden's administration's response to 16, And he says, quote, try to find a clearer example of modern liberalism's haplessness and inability to respond to structural crisis or its anti-populist strain in action, close quote. And I was just struck by that, that the prosecution of The rioters was seen as evidence of an anti-populist strain. And then later in the piece, he says, quote, low-level rank-and-file capital rioters who were accused of little more than trespassing in a government building have been severely dealt with. It would be no good after all if failing to punish them ended up inspiring a mass protest that wasn't centered on bullshit like universal health care, poverty, or climate change, close quote. And I just found this also really striking, this basically equating like the kind of politics that Jacobin wants to do, mass protests for social democratic demands with fascist insurrection and this inability to distinguish between the two. It's just like masses versus the elite, masses versus the elite. And there's like no, nothing in their analysis can like differentiate between the two.
1: Which is very scary. Because it's not only a failure of thinking, an inability to see something, it goes to what they're actually themselves about. I mean, if they were to gain power, what would we have? What What is their own commitment to the rule of law, to civil liberties, to democracy and so forth? This might sound extreme on my part, but I mean, excuse me, there has been a long history of what's called itself the left that put political prisoners in, in jail, killed its enemies from the, the people on the left and and so forth. And, you know, it's gone by the name Stalinism and so forth. The The other thing is, he says, it would be no good if failing to punish them ended up inspiring a mass protest that wasn't centered on bullshit, okay? What that is telling us is that the capital insurrection was a mass protest. N- no. It wasn't. It was a seditious conspiracy. Even the Merrick Garland's Department of Justice is saying it's a seditious conspiracy, which, again, doesn't mean that every grunt was aware of all aspects of the conspiracy they were uh, engaged in. But to call it a protest is is really, really whitewashing it.
0: Yeah, and I, this is we'll see this later when we talk about Ben Burgess, right, because he does the same thing comparing the Capitol riot to— Black Lives Matter protests where buildings may have been taken over by protesters. I guess if you were like an alien from outer space and you just saw like people going into buildings and that was the only context you had, like maybe that would make sense that this is all one of the same type of action. But if you're actually like living here in America and you understand like the difference between people entering a building to interrupt the certification of an election versus people like entering a building to protest police murders... It's a completely different, completely different actions that both involve people entering a building. But like the, the essential features of them aren't the people going into a building. So I, it's hard for me to like understand why these two things are being equated honestly, like why they can't see the essential difference between them. But uh, moving on, we have now alluded a couple times to Robert Pape's demographic research into the insurrectionists so why don't we talk about that now that'll help ground some of this discussion
1: Yeah, some demographic background and some actual research um, around motivations rather than made up stuff you know and and I'm, I'm i'm struck by both serata and marchetic having no mention of race or racism you know when when they discuss this it, it's amazing but Robert Pape, he's a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, and he's director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. And immediately after one 2021 he began to study who the capital insurrectionists are and what motivated them. And he published some preliminary findings back in April based on people who had been charged at that point. And that was only about 300 or so. But at the start of this month, uh, January 2022, the finished study was released, and it's based on a much larger database of perpetrators who've been charged. And in addition, he and his team, together with a survey firm, did an opinion survey, an attitudinal survey of 2,000 people, random sample, you know, very high-quality study, so they understand not just, like, the motivations of these particular people who happen to be at the Capitol and engaged in insurrection, but all of the people who think like them. And it's extremely interesting that back when Pape started his study, he had the same inclination, the same hypothesis, the same predisposition to think that there was economic stress underlying the fascist insurrection and the motivation of the the insurrectionists and so forth. But unlike some of these people, when he learns the facts he changes his mind accordingly. So, as Alan Foyer, reporting in the New York Times, said back in uh, April, Pape expected to find that the insurrectionists were driven to violence by the lingering effects of the 2008 Great Recession. What Pape actually found, and these are his own words, is that the capital insurrectionists are mainly middle class to upper middle class whites who are worried that as social changes occur around them, they will see a decline in their status in the future. So already, you know, Pape had disabused himself of his initial thinking. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we get the finished study and it confirms what he found in the preliminary study and reinforces it in spades. So let me start with some of the really uh, interesting demographic information, and then on the attitudes of of the insurrectionists and people like
0: them. Yeah, let's get into it. This is a really interesting study. I was even surprised about some of these points.
1: Okay, yeah. Basically, the the insurrectionists, and you know, he's saying the seven hundred and so people who've been charged to this point, they're not your father's right-wing extremists. They're not your your standard picture of what a right-wing extremist is. His article in uh, Foreign Policy is entitled, The Gen 6 Insurrectionists Aren't Who You Think They Are. They're not people on the fringes of society. They were not disproportionately young or destitute or unemployed or rural. More than half of them were either business owners or CEOs of corporations or professionals including doctors, lawyers, accountants, architects, and only 7% of them were unemployed at the time, which is very close to the national average unemployment rate. Two-thirds of them were 35 years or older, the largest numbers of, you know, insurrectionists who were picked up and and charged, the largest numbers of them were in their 40s and in their 50s. 25% of them have a college degree, which is close to the national average as well. One of the really striking findings that, that, that Pape uh, came up with is that more than half of these insurrectionists live in counties that Biden won in the 2020 election. And uh, the way he put it, Pape, is the more the county votes for Trump, the less likely was the county to send an insurrectionist. The more rural, the less likely to send an insurrectionist. Okay, so they're overwhelmingly from cities and, and from suburbs. But not just any cities and suburbs. Pape says the key characteristic uniting them, the insurrectionists, is that they come from counties where the white share of the population is declining fastest, the counties losing the most white population. That's a really central finding. And he connects it to the attitudes of these people and their motivations and what's driving them. But keep in mind that these are counties that are becoming less white and where it looks like there might be, like, white flight from. And then there's a number of other uh, interesting demographic details he found. In terms of military background, gun ownership, criminal history, the insurrectionists are much, much closer to the profile of the general population than to the profile of past Right wing extremists and where they're getting their information and what they're being influenced by, it's not mainly social media, much less right wing social media. The main source is uh, right wing cable news, Fox News, Max, uh, One America News Network. Uh, that was like, you know, 42% said those things were their main news sources. But for 32% of them, it was mainstream TV news, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, on radio, NPR.
0: Yeah, that was one of the most surprising facts uh, to me, that these people get their news from a lot of the same places that I get my news. But it's definitely not the picture of the capital writers that we get from Jacobin, which makes it sound like they're all just a bunch of coal miners' sons, hard up on their luck and upset about deindustrialization. And it's more like the picture of of this Texas realtor who made headlines last year, Jenna Ryan. She flew to... The insurrection on a private jet and filmed herself in the Capitol building and put in a plug for her realty company in her like, live stream of herself at the riot.
1: Is she the one who tweeted, Oh, I'm safe. They're not going to do anything to me because I'm blonde? Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, she was like, After people are like breaking into offices. She was there in the building. She was like, use Generon for your realtor you know she <laughs> anyway this is like i feel like she's like your prototypical insurrectionist right M- middle-aged white blonde woman plugging her realty company flew on a private jet yeah he so pape also has this study of the attitudes of the pro-insurrectionists And what motivated them and what did motivate them?
1: Right. So here he, to have a a sample of people, what he's got to get at is not the people who actually participated in, in the insurrection, but who are the people who are in support of it. So what they were able to do is to say, okay, here are two segments of the population, those who support insurrection and those who don't. So PAPES project, together with the National Opinion Research Center, they surveyed, Uh, 2,000 U.S. adults. What they found is about 8% of the U.S. adults, 21 million extrapolating from the 2,000. 8% of U.S. adults contend two things. First, that Biden is an illegitimate president, and secondly, that it's justified to use force to return Trump to power. So there's far more than like 21 million people who are saying that Biden is an illegitimate president. But the the pro-insurrectionist movement that uh, Pape calls the pro-insurrectionist movement is more specific than that. Not only is Biden's presidency illegitimate, but the use of force to return Trump to power is justified. That's the 21 million people, the 8%, because of margins of error, be, might be as low as 5% of the population, 13 million people. It might be as high as 11% of the population, 28 million people. That, that's a 95% confidence, confidence interval, you know, I mean, it's possible that it's even much more than that. So w- w- what are the beliefs of the pro-insurrectionist uh, people in this country? You know, what's what's motivating them? In his foreign policy article, Pape said the following, the number one belief among the pro-insurrectionists, fully 75% of them, their number one belief is the great replacement of the electorate by the Democratic Party. And this idea is also, he said, the most important thing that separates the pro-insurrectionist camp from the rest of the population, where the great replacement notion does not hold much sway. Okay, so what is this great replacement? As Pay put it, the people who go around talking about Great Replacement, they're very concerned about the idea that the rights of whites are being overtaken by the rights of minorities or that the Democratic Party is deliberately bringing in immigrants in order to change the demographics in the country deliberately, to disenfranchise the current conservative voters. So that it, we're all on the same page here. This th- exact theme, Great Replacement, that was the theme of the Char- of the Charlottesville rally where the the guy mowed down Heather Heyer. Th- those very fine people who were prancing around with tiki torches were chanting, "Jews will not replace us." Now this has been picked up by Tucker Carlson again and again and again. He's hawking some very similar stuff. You know, he's not coming out and saying Jews will not replace us, but there is this great replacement theme pervading his, the stuff he spews. Okay, so recall that Pape finds that the insurrectionists did not come from rural areas, did not come from, you know, real red districts. They came from suburbs, they came from cities, particularly the ones that are losing the most white population. And Pape says, this has everything to do with the Great Replacement. Literally, these people are being replaced by by non-whites. At least in share, in the places where they're coming from. There is some reality, although it's obviously distorted, there is some reality to their sense of being replaced. And Pape also says, look, this great replacement notion that they hold to is the main thing that separates the pro-insurrectionist movement in this country, the 13 to 28 million people, 5 to 11 percent. Great replacement is the main thing that separates them from the rest of the population. Okay, so there's other things going on. You know, a lot of them are QAnon people, or they're afraid of losing their job, or they're saying that the second coming of Christ is going to happen soon, or they regard government as an enemy. Okay, there's other beliefs, but Pape says, look, all of those are secondary factors. The main motivation and the main uh, thing unites them, that's great replacement.
0: That's really striking, especially in contrast to Marchetic's Characterization of these people as just being duped by a bunch of lies and conspiracy theories, right? So, Pap is saying, "Look, they, yeah, a lot of them do believe in conspiracy theories, and obviously, they all believe in this li- the big lie." But that's not the main thing. The main thing is this great replacement racist motivation
1: yeah and and he he does draw the connection between great replacement thinking and and race he asks the question pape does why do so many people subscribe to this great replacement notion you know he doesn't just say great replacement and then attribute that to racism i mean that that, that's the the way the jacobin crowd does something they glom onto a factoid And then from among the myriad of possible explanations of that factoid, they choose the ones that they want. That's not what Pape did. He wants to understand what is driving the Great Replacement thinking. And he says the number one factor that predicts whether someone believes in the Great Replacement is racial resentment. That is specifically resentment of minorities who get what they see as special privileges. Okay, this is this has been like a standard, you know, finding in understanding so-called populist right-wing thinking. It's that there are the the deserving white people, and then there are these other people, and they're getting special privileges, whether it's affirmative action, whether it's welfare policy, whatever it might be.
0: So now that we've laid down some of the facts as um pape has uncovered them i mean this these kind of facts present a real challenge to someone like marchetic and other people jacobin who want to say that these people are all just duped or that they are just representing some sort of anti-elite sentiment this popular will against corrupt politicians that's been mistakenly misdirected at the at the election like these are people that are very reactionary. They're they're motivated by racial resentment. They're not gonna just turn on a dime and become leftist social democrats just because someone offers them health care. Or forgives their college debt,
1: or publishes pieces in Jacobin yeah. magazine. <laughs> yeah, right,
0: <laughs> the Democrats studying their neoliberal clothing and taking some different political tact is not going to woo these people away. This is like a very reactionary sub- segment of the population that um, has to be dealt with um, and not just ignored. <laughs> Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
2: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donahue. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activists and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
0: Why don't we take a look at Ben Burgess's, his soft on fascism arguments, and then we'll take a look at Serrata. Ben Burgess had the great fortune to be on a double episode of our podcast, not discussing these issues. But we did discuss uh, Burgess on a podcast a while back when he was on a, was it a platypus panel that was making similar arguments to what we'll be talking about today. We're going to be marshalling some different arguments that Burgess has made in the past year, both on his podcast, other people's podcast. He was on the David Feldman podcast, debating David Feldman. He was, had a debate with, Aaron Green, we're going to talk about, reference some of his tweets about 1-6. He's a few different arguments about why we should be either not concerned about the fascist insurrection or soft on it, et etc. Let's take them one at a time. One, he's argued that the left should not cheer on the prosecution of the January 6th because, quote, The point is, if you want to set the precedent that even if somebody does nothing personally violent, just the mere fact that they stormed a Capitol building or other government building during the protests, that the book should be thrown at them for doing that, that they should get a year in prison for doing that, that is a precedent I think is incredibly dangerous and could be used for incredibly draconian crackdowns against the left. Close quote. I mean, this is really similar to the Marchetic piece in that there's a complete inability to differentiate between left protest and fascist coups. And he does this not just in this quote. I mean, he directly compares January 6th to Black Lives Matter protests many times and repeatedly stresses that the two examples, even though they're not morally equivalent, that the precedent of prosecuting the right will make it easier to prosecute the left. But like I said before, maybe if you were completely devoid of context and you were looking at it from like outer space or something and you saw just people going into buildings, you might think that these were similar things. But disrupting an election or trying to overthrow an election is a very different type of action than storming a police building to protest police murders. It's not just the moral equivalent, you know, the the question of whether the morally equivalent, I think it's like they're two different things um, that both involve people going into buildings but th- this inability to make that kind of differentiation is really uh dangerous we know the FBI and the CIA and the police are gonna police are gonna go after leftists that's that's kind of given right
1: yeah and there's already a precedent I mean you don't need to worry about new precedents to to, to go uh, in 1954, Puerto Rican nationalists stormed the capital. They ended up in, in, in prison and all, all kinds of things. So that's uh, 67 years ago. You've got the precedent, okay? You don't need to worry about the precedent.
0: was that we don't have a lot of precedents for the right being taken on by police. The FBI don't normally infiltrate the Klan and try to overthrow neo-Nazi groups. They instead, the police like walk next to the Klan and protect them when they're marching in the streets and have a revolving door between the fascists and the police. That's like what the precedent is for in US politics. So for the state to actually mobilize against the right would be a major step forward.
1: And let me just say this I mean, I know what you said that the Burgess isn't able to see this and that. You're speaking loosely, it's, a, it's an idiom, it's a turn of phrase. Ben Burgess is much more able to see these distinctions than you or I. He's a trained logician. He writes books about logic. Uh, he has a PhD in the fine points of logic. He teaches logic. He, he's certainly able to see and to make the distinctions in question. So it's not an inability. It's a lack of desire. He, he, he's, he's competent.
0: Well, that's very generous of you, Andrew. <laughs> Um, no, I, I get what you mean. So then he has another argument, which is the free speech argument. He advances this very naive notion of free speech, defending the right of fascists to spread fascism on social media and in the media. He had a tweet on January 6th of this year, so on the anniversary. It's a long tweet, but I think it's worth reading if one cannot vomit while listening to it. I should say that I should give people like a trigger warning before I read it because I could barely make it through the tweet. The tweet. <laughs> He says, if you believe in socialism, not just as state ownership, but as economic democracy, if you think CLR James was right to say every cook can govern, you have to absolutely loathe the kind of liberal paternalism that minimizes the importance of free speech. It's a package deal. How could you possibly agree with James and still trust ordinary people to make up their own minds so little? You want tech CEOs to deplatform conspiracists, or the New York Times, not to publish dangerous op-eds or publishers to protect impressionable minds from ancient Norman Mailer essays. And the quote continues, I know some people will hear this as agreeing with conservatives, but the opposite is true. When the right talks about free speech, if we respond by, at best, pointing out their many hypocrisies in the subject, or, all too often, adopting a legalistic libertarian conception of free speech, and minimizing the profound value of open debate about controversial ideas, the effect in practice is to absurdly seed the issue to the right, even as it passes bills in Republican state legislatures to legalize running over protesters who block traffic and empower bureaucrats to peer into classrooms and fire teachers for discussing divisive concepts and tweet. Andrew, we've criticized this sort of notion of free speech many times.
1: Uh, on the podcast. He, he talks about minimizing the profound value of open debate about controversial ideas. He's referring to a number of things, but one of them is pushing conspiracy theories on social media. What is the profound value of pushing conspiracy theories on social media?
0: Or, or just flat-out lies. How is that like open debate that advances truth that's not philosophical dialectical back and forth it's just lies
1: yeah that's the that's the really big issue is, is that not all words are speech they they have a different function and and that the function of of conspiracy theory is not to debate controversial ideas that's that's not what it's about what is the profound value of seriously entertaining complete crap for which there's no evidence that is, is not even plausible, and normalizing that and putting it on the same footing as, as real empirical evidence, it, it, it's horrible. As you said, the whole idea that, you know, free speech promotes valuation of controversial ideas is something else, and what he's done is to marry that idea of speech as as a way of developing human understanding with a very crude civil libertarian anything goes kind of defensive free speech. Those two things are quite different, but he's, he's just like melded them together so that crude civil libertarianism now becomes some lofty renaissance rationalist program for improving human society. It just doesn't make any sense.
0: It also really fails to take into account the real threat of The way fascists like abused democratic society and turned it to their own ends. I mean, this is like one of the fundamental, you know, one of the like prime weaknesses of democratic society that fascists have always taken advantage of to try to overthrow that democratic society, they're not taking part in the conversation in order to advance the conversation. They want to destroy the conversation. They're not part of the society in order to advance that society. They're there to destroy the society and take it over. So if you don't understand what they're up to and you just treat it as like, trying to do what everyone else is doing, it's not going to work. If you don't understand the danger and you just, you, you try to help these people over, take over a society and destroy freedom and speech, it, it, the whole thing is lost. You have to be aware of what you're dealing with here. And that's just, if anything, I mean, that's one of the big things all of these people from Jacobin seem to fail to do is to understand the real danger.
1: Uh, absolutely. Uh, and this was said Really well, long ago, by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, the uh, existentialist French philosopher, in an essay called "Anti-Semite and, and Jew."
0: So the Sartre quote: um, "Never believe that anti-Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their lies. They know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge, but they are amusing themselves. For it is their adversary who is obliged to use words responsibly, since he believes in words. The anti-Semites have the right to play." They even like to play with discourse, for, by giving ridiculous reasons, they discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors. They delight in acting in bad faith, since they seek not to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate and disconcert. If you press them too closely, they will abruptly fall silent, loftily indicating by some phrase that the time for argument is past. That's a good characterization of
1: of this kind of stuff. Yeah, he was onto them way back. (laughs) I mean, it helps to, you know, have have lived in occupied France, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. The the last argument of Burgess's that I thought we should bring up is that he has argued that 1-6 wasn't a coup because it failed and it never could have succeeded. This is such a bad argument that it's hard to know how to even start. But um, for one, it just seems disingenuous as more and more information comes out about 1-6, more and more video, more and more connections between all these different groups and politicians, it seems like it was definitely an attempt to overthrow the election, as you said. And even if it did fail, that doesn't make it less dangerous or less of a problem.
1: You know, I mean, everybody's saying, oh, it could have succeeded, but it it may next time it may succeed. It did succeed, not ultimately yet, but for several hours, they did prevent the certification of the election. Which was precisely the, the the role of the insurrection in this conspiracy, to prevent Pence from like opening up all the the envelopes and being done in an hour and, and and Joe Biden being certified. They they managed to stop that for several hours. Only pressure on Trump got the the Capitol area cleared eventually, so that in, in the evening they're they're walking over shit and stepping over bodies, whatever. And so they eventually do certify. You can't say it didn't succeed. You can't, you might say it didn't completely succeed, but you can't say it didn't succeed at all. The police or national security, whoever, they were telling Pence, get out of this building for your security. And Pence, Pence's people, he's holed up in, you know, some underground bunker or something within the the Capitol saying, we ain't leaving. We we don't know yet. No, exactly why they're not leaving. But, you know, he he was afraid for his life if if he left that building. What if if they had not made that decision? I mean, come on.
0: It's hard to believe that Burgess could still believe this unless this belief is doing something to advance his politics. So I think the real question here is, what does this do to advance his politics? How does arguing that there's nothing to see here advance his politics? Really, this desire not to condemn the insurrectionists is that the Jacobin mentality doesn't want to criticize the Trump base because they think that the base is the base are people that can be won over to their side. They can't come out and say, These are reactionary people. We don't want them. You know, that we have to fight them. If they were to say that, then they would fundamentally have to change their politics.
1: Right. Because they would realize that there is not a ready made mass base for social democracy with just a couple of tweaks. Uh, you orient them to some non-racialized version of the same thing. And here we're, we're ready and waiting to pick up the pieces of that. They would have to come to grips with the fact that their ideas do not have a mass following.
0: It's as if they think that if just a few, you know, a few people in the Democratic Party got out of the way, Bernie Sanders took over, all those insurrectionists would be waving Sanders signs and they have this landslide victory for social democracy in this country.
1: Right. And that, and that's the other thing. I think you're right. The, the wishful thinking of there is in, an incipient mass base for our stuff. That's seems to be driving this. But the other thing is the whole anti-neoliberal left. The main enemy for them is neoliberalism. The main enemy is therefore, you know, the Democratic Party to really take account of what is happening in this country The fascism and looking at that as the main enemy that wreaks havoc with their whole mindset now going for more than a decade.
0: Well, why don't we turn to our last Jacobin author? We're going to discuss David Sirota. Sirota's piece is from January 6th of this year, and it's entitled "The Long American Meltdown Led to the January 6th Insurrection." David Sirota was a senior advisor and speechwriter for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. He is an editor-at-large for Jacobin Magazine, and he also worked on the new hit film, Don't Look Up, which honestly would make a great, like, subtitle for a Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin Magazine, Don't Look Up.
1: I I swear to God, you know, in, in the film Don't Look Up, Ariana Grande sings, get your head out of your ass, listen to the goddamn qualified scientists. And I, I, when I was like reading Serrata's article, I was just thinking, he really should do well to follow that advice. Get his head out of his ass, look up, and listen to the goddamn qualified social scientists like Pape. People have actually learned something about the capital insurrectionists. People have actually learned something about the Trump, Trumpite base in general, who they are, what is actually driving them. You know, real empirical knowledge, not comforting stories and and, and wishful thinking. But no, uh, Sirota refuses to look up. So what does he do instead? Well, in Jacobin, he doubles down on the anti-neoliberal left's big lie. You know, their big lie is not that the election was stolen. Their big lie is that Trumpism is a working class revolt against the economic distress that neoliberalism has been imposing on the working class for decades. I mean, his article bills itself as explaining the roots of right-wing authoritarianism and the root causes of the capital insurrection.
0: If people haven't figured it out by now whenever people, Jacobin say the roots of something, or the real causes, they just mean neoliberalism.:
1: Right. Or more generally, you know something that has to do with economics in the most immediate yeah. and crude way. I mean, the root cause could never be something like uh, white supremacy. It would always have to be something like hunger
0: but it makes them feel really deep and gives them that like smug leftist feeling that they're they understand like the real context for things they're not being deluded by the the mainstream
1: narratives that's that's it roots of right-wing authoritarianism root causes of the capital insurrection What are they? Well, Serrata's story is that the insurrection, quote, was the product of a decades-long attempt to destroy democracy in America. And Democrats have never made an effort to stop that by creating a government that is serious about the public interest. This is, like, seductive, this argument, because there has been a decades-long attempt to destroy democracy in America. But it's not one that Sorota's article says anything about. The decades-long attempt to destroy a democracy in America is a reactionary fight back against the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the mid-1960s, and more recently against the browning of America through immigration and other factors. It's an attempt to maintain white supremacy and Republican power in the face of these demographic changes. How do you do that? The, the voting population is moving more and more against you. How do you combat that? You combat that by making sure immigrants never get citizenship, curtailing immigration, curtailing voting rights. So it's all about great replacement and the racism underlying great replacement. That's what the assault on democracy is about. And Sorota's article just says nothing about it. There's no discussion of the great replacement thinking or racism or xenophobia. There isn't any mention of black people or immigrants. None. And I also noticed that, like, in in Marchetic. He's talking about who the insurrectionists are and their motivations. Race, racism, black people, they're not there. So for them, it's like the attempt to destroy democracy, the insurrection. For them, it seems like none of that has any intrinsic relation to racism or white nationalism. I mean, really? So, how, do, how does Sirota try to pull this off? He says that the January 6th insurrection was the weaponized manifestation of virulent anti-government sentiment. Which is true, okay? But what, in his view, is what does he think is the cause of this anti-government sentiment? Neoliberalism, okay? And the right-wing exploitation of the anti-government sentiment. Uh, neoliberalism, he says, has been ravaging the working class and the government has either aided that ravaging or has done little to stop it, and therefore, the Sirota story, that's why people are anti-government. Keep in mind what, what, what Pape and his, his project found. It contradicts this in, in a number of ways. First of all, the profile of the insurrectionists, a lot of them are business owners, professionals, it's not this ravaged working class. Second, as Pape stresses, the pro-insurrectionist population is driven primarily by great replacement thinking. They do believe, a lot of them, the government uh, is the enemy, but he says, look, that's a secondary factor. And third, the, even the anti-government sentiment isn't driven by the kinds of things that Sorota is, is talking about, you know, neoliberalism. It's not a colorblind reaction against neoliberalism. As Pape noted, the number one factor that predicts whether someone believes in the Great Replacement is resentment of minorities who get what they see as special privileges. And since the government and politicians are supposedly beholden to these special interests, the minorities, okay, the thinking is that the government and the politicians shower the minorities with special privileges, and in return the minorities keep them in power, so the racism and white nationalism For that reason, they also manifest themselves as anti-government sentiment, okay? It's not just, you know, it's not libertarianism, and it's not revulsion against neoliberalism. It's racism because you think that the government and the politicians are in the pockets of these others. Uh, This is a very well-established finding. I mean, you know, we didn't need Pape to know this in general. Yeah, I mean, it just amazes me how, like, Jacobin can, like, pretend... None of this is the context and the subtext of, like, everything. Yeah. Uh, Sorota published his his article at a really unfortunate Mm -hmm. time for him. It's kind of like Dustin Guastella publishing his piece in Jacobin, We Don't Need a Culture War, We Need a Class War. Published that on uh, May 25 of 2020, the the day that uh, George Floyd was murdered. And Sorota had the misfortune of publishing his thing on January 6th, which is right after Pape's finished study was released. And so what did Sirota have to do? He had to try to rescue his narrative from a lot of inconvenient facts. They just blew it out of the water. And so there is this one little paragraph in Sirota that does address what Pape said and doesn't mention him by name, but does provide a link. What Sirota writes is, it's hardly a surprise that many of the disgruntled rioters had faced recent financial hardship which no doubt many blamed on, you guessed it, the government. It's even less surprising that many other rioters were economically well-off and considered mainstream rather than fringe militia types, showing that anti-government sentiment had been normalized and spread to Republicans' golf and tennis crowd. Really nice save, Dave. Uh, no. There's more wrong with that that, that attempted save. First... Sorota has zero evidence regarding the motivations of the economically well-off insurrectionists, you know, what they're interested in. He's just making it up, including the part about their anti-government sentiment only being adopted belatedly, and including the part that their anti-government sentiment is purely ideological. Since they're not the ravaged working class Sarada cannot see how their anti-government sentiment could be anything more than just purely ideological. He can't see that it could have a material base like white supremacy. I mean, For, for those people, white supremacy seems to, to, to not be part of the material base. The other thing is, the way he attempts to rescue his argument is a heads-eye-win, tails-you-lose maneuver. Many of the insurrectionists faced financial hardship. That's no surprise, so heads-eye-win. But many of them were economically well-off. Well, that's no surprise. Tales, you lose. Um, So he he tries to rescue his argument by making it into what's called non-falsifiable in principle. No evidence, whatever, is surprising. No evidence, in other words, is inconsistent with his story. But that means that it's not, you know, a real empirical claim. It's an article of faith. It's a dogma. So what that ends up being is the true believers in the Jacobin Big Lie... Never have to question it, because any evidence at all can be spun to be consistent with it, because that's the dogma. But because it's a dogma, it, look, the rest of us don't have to take it seriously, and we shouldn't. It's bad enough. But the, the worst aspect of his overall argument, Sarada's, was its self-refuting character. On the one hand, he claims that neoliberalism is to blame for this turn away from democracy. On the other hand, there's this tacit admission going throughout the article that there was never real support for democracy among the vast majority of people, ever. You know, well before neoliberalism, support for democracy was shaky. What, what he says in the article was, for instance, Franklin Roosevelt understood that delivering economic gains for the working class is not merely good moral policy, but also the only way to preserve democracy. As he said, a, a government that refuses to deliver those gains will create a population willing to... Sacrificed liberty in the hope of getting something to eat." Well, which is it? Neoliberalism is the cause of the turn away from democracy? Or was there no turn away from democracy because democracy itself wasn't at all that popular to begin with? You can't have it both ways. And as to the something-to-eat stuff, it superficially seems reasonable, but it's only because, and again I stress this, he and Marchetic, evidently Burgess, they make the masses of black people disappear. And in the process, what also disappears is black people's long struggle for democratic rights, which has everything to do with something to eat. By writing them out of history and out of the present moment, Soroto manages to avoid explaining something that his story can't possibly explain. That is, why aren't the masses of black people willing to sacrifice liberty in the hope of getting something to eat? Think about that. Okay, they're certainly disproportionately poor, working class, desperate for something to eat. So why have they always been, and why do they continue to be at the forefront? They're at the forefront in the struggle to extend and protect democracy and democratic rights. How do you explain that? This idea of democracy just being, you know, some bells and whistles, and the real stuff being something to eat, and those two things being entirely unrelated. It, it just doesn't wash.
0: Well, I think I want to make a um, a bingo card. like It's like a bingo game that you can play when you're reading Jacobin pieces. And all the squares are just going to say neoliberalism. <laughs> uh, yeah. So everybody wins. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, what, what did you call it earlier? Uh, yeah, paint by Numbers. Paint by Numbers, yeah. Really, I mean, er- everything sort of like Goes by a template. You know, problem, cause, neoliberalism, obstacle, Democrats, solution, social democracy, winners, us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there might even be like a computer program ghostwriting their pieces for them at this point. <laughs> <laughs> if there isn't, there should be. They could save a lot of time and money, feed a bunch of pieces into a computer, make an algorithm out of it, and it could just respond to the current events of the day by just pumping out a generic jacobin piece
1: yeah i mean obviously that can be done people have written similar programs we we should we we should we should investigate that write your own jacobin essay you know jacobin essay
0: generator yeah
1: yeah, exactly you 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 feed you feed in the problem and once you feed in the problem that that's it the rest of it's right there like
0: like mad libs or something yeah
1: (laughs) yeah jacobin essay generator that'd be great if one of our listeners has the, the, the programming skill to do that...
0: Oh, please write to us.
1: Please write to us.
0: Yes, that would be amazing. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast... And, of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. And...